Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you again for your kindness in hosting Jenny and me these last few days and in uh, yeah, giving me the joy of opening the word of God with you. What a joy. And it would be a cheeky guest at this point who might say to English football supporters, that you may not need to stress too much about being free on the night of the 18th. Uh, That would be a cheeky guess, so I wouldn't do that. I would be a much more polite guest and uh, remind you that I support Australia and you've got more hope of being busy on the 18th than I have, let's just say. (laughs) Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word and then we'll dig into it together. Our Father, we're really thankful to you for the opportunity to gather together this morning and to listen to what you've got to say about life in our world. Please teach us, we pray. Help us by your spirit to understand the important things you are saying so that we might respond rightly to the king of all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, how would you describe your attitude towards God? How would you describe how you feel about God? You might be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. You might be quite positive in your attitude towards God. But maybe you're not a Christian. This church loves welcoming people who are not yet followers of Jesus, and so it is fantastic that you are here this morning. Perhaps you are just checking things out. Perhaps you are still working out what the truth is about Jesus, trying to work these things out. Maybe you would describe your attitude to Jesus as more neutral at this point. But there is a possibility that you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus and you feel pretty negative towards God. Thank you for being here and giving God a hearing. What about you? Where are you in that scheme of things? How would you describe your attitude towards God? Around the world, people are not shy these days to wear negative attitudes towards God. The American cosmologist and prominent atheist Lawrence Krauss, he is one example on the screen. You can see what he said. Lawrence Krauss said, I can't prove that God doesn't exist, but I would much rather live in a universe without one. It doesn't sound that negative until you think about it. Lawrence is basically saying to God, I don't know much about you, but I wish you weren't here. 
Woody Allen gets a bit more in God's face, as he usually does, with this quote on the screen. If God exists, I hope he has a good excuse. If God exists, he has a lot of explaining to do, Woody thinks. He's not living up to our expectations, so God needs to explain himself. And of course, if you want real attitude against God, then um, the old favourite Richard Dawkins, he'll always bring it, won't he? He'll always bring attitude. He says on the screen, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I understand the last word at least. Yeah. (laughs) We humans can be pretty good at railing against God, can't we? We can do it pretty well. That railing against God, that's the context we find ourselves in as we open Psalm 2. So what do you think God will have to say about it? Let's have a look at this psalm together. We're at point one, humanity versus God. And have a look at your Bibles again. Let's just read the first three verses again. Why do the nations conspire? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. These verses are full of unrest. There is turmoil amongst the nations. The rulers of the nations are uniting and conspiring and plotting about how to throw God off. This is humanity railing against God. This is humanity versus God. And we understand this kind of world because we still live in it. And look at the way humanity is speaking about God in verse 3. Can you see that humanity is accusing God of enslaving them in cords and bonds? They are painting God as a cruel slave master who has held humanity in captivity for too long. And humanity wants out. Of course, it's a caricature. God doesn't literally hold humans in ropes and chains, but the caricature speaks of that human desire to throw throw God off, to be free of God. In our most natural state, we humans don't want anyone to rule over us, and particularly a God to rule over us. We want to be masters of our own destiny. We want autonomy in our lives, to live however we want. We don't want to have to naturally answer to any God. If you've ever wondered what the Bible really means by the word sin, these verses are a very good picture of it. Sometimes when we think of sin, we think of small disobedient acts, of little actions that break God's laws. You might think of things like stealing, Sexual expression outside of the context of marriage. Maybe naughty thoughts or the like. We like to think of sin as little tiny things, maybe that we sort of do wrong every so often. And that is true, they are things that are sin in the Bible. But if you really want to understand sin at its basic level, verses 1 to 3 is a much better picture. Our human sin at its most fundamental level is this kind of rebellion against God. Our sin is not wanting God to be over us as God. 
Human sin is about railing against God and seeking to throw him off, to push him away. And these verses, they paint a fairly chaotic picture of human rebellion against God, don't they? The picture looks pretty crazy and out of control. But look at how God responds. Is God panicked by this uprising? Is God concerned about this rebellion? Verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God doesn't seem overly threatened by this attempted coup, does he? God laughs. It shows just how foolish it is for humans to think that we can throw God off. God is not threatened by human rebellion. God is not troubled by this human bid for freedom. God laughs. What does that laughter communicate? God is not threatened even by the rulers of the world uniting against him. God's laughter reinforces just how pathetic it is that we humans think we can take on God to throw him off. But don't let that laughter lull you into a false sense of security. God has every right to be angry when the humans that he has created rebel against him and seek to overthrow him. This uprising, it's not a threat to God, but we must understand why God is angry about it. How do you think God feels about your attitude towards him? How do you think God feels about the attitudes of Lawrence Krauss, Woody Allen, Richard Dawkins? You can see why God is rightfully angry at this kind of human rebellion from the very humans that he has generously created. It's only fair to let God have a voice in this conflict, isn't it? It's only fair to give God a voice, to let God speak for himself about this rebellion. Will you let God speak in his anger? Verse 5. Then God rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying... Okay, let's hit pause here for just a moment. God who has every right to be angry at human rebellion, is about to speak in his anger. What would you expect God to say in his anger? Have a real think about it. I want you to think in your head. What would you expect a rightfully angry God to say in his anger? Now let's read what God actually does say. And see whether it's anything like what you expected. Verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, I don't know about you, but of all the things I might have expected God to say in his anger, that is not high on the list whatsoever. In fact, when the statement is introduced by the line, he will terrify them in his fury terrify them in his wrath, saying, did you expect the thing that God would say would be, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill? It's odd, isn't it? That statement, I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound very terrifying to me. Why would that statement be terrifying? As for me, 
I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. How could that statement be terrifying? Now, will you permit me to do something we do at the university in, in Sydney? Will you permit me to, to make you honorary Australians for a moment? Because this might, this might not feel overly British, but can, we, can, can I make you honorary Australians just, just for a moment? Because I'm going to do something. I want to do something to help us learn from God's word here. I'm going to give you a question that I'd like you to chat about with the person next to you. I know it feels un-British. My fellow honorary Australians, here is the question. Would you please take 30 seconds to chat to the person next to you about what they think the answer is? Go for it. Okay, let's have a think about this together. How did you go, how did you go being honorary Australians for a moment there? I know it's a little bit of a downgrade in the accent, but did you suddenly feel just a little bit better at sport by any chance? All right, let's, let's think about this. The terrifyingness of that statement obviously has a lot to do with the king, doesn't it? Obviously. It's saying something about that king. So what is it about that king that could be terrifying? Well, we need to keep reading. Let's go to verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. The first thing we learn about this king is that God has made a decree about him. The decree begins with what looks like adoption. The king is declared by God to be God's son. And this declaration was probably made on the day that Israel's king took his throne in Israel. This psalm is actually sometimes called a coronation psalm. Because it was believed to have been proclaimed significantly on the first day as each Israelite king took the throne. So on the day that the king was crowned and declared to be the ruler over all the people of Israel, he was also declared to have this very special relationship with God. From that moment onwards, the kings of Israel had the very important title, Son of God. Now, don't get it wrong, we're not talking about deification. They remained human. They didn't become gods. They didn't even try to pretend that they were gods. That's what the megalomaniac kings of Egypt did. It's easier to read when Richard Dawkins writes it, isn't it? Uh, that's, what, that's what the pharaohs did. They, they took on this title, son of God, and they said, we've actually become gods. And you should start worshipping us as such. But the kings of Israel never, ever thought that this title meant they had become gods. This title just showed a very special relationship with the true God. It all went back to that promise made by God to the second king of Israel, King David. And I think you guys have been working through this in the last term fantastic. Let's have a look at it. Um, up on the screen, can I read to you the promise from 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 to 14? When, uh, God is speaking to David, King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here it is, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You've been studying this this year. You've already seen that God promised King David that King David would have an eternal dynasty. And God promised to be a father to their every royal descendant of King David. 
That promise is why this psalm proclaims the king's divine sonship at every coronation in Israel. But this impressive title, it doesn't seem to make the king of Israel overly terrifying. Why would a son of God king be God's terrifying answer to human rebellion? It's all about the authority that God gives to his chosen king. Let's read about it, verses 8 and 9 in the psalm. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. These verses are incredible. They are saying that God will give the earth and its people to his chosen king. God is going to give everything to his chosen king as his inheritance. This is inheritance language, isn't it? And you guys are experts at this at the moment. Because I understand that just this year, King Charles inherited a fair bit of your country. Is that right? Could a cheeky Australian even say that you yourself were part of his inheritance? Don't worry, I I think I am too. (laughs) That is the picture here. The God who made the world and its people is promising to give this Son of God King the world and its people as his inheritance. And verse 8 makes it really clear that this Son of God King can do with the inheritance as he sees fit. If his inheritance is rebellious and out of line, this son of God king can exact his judgment. He can break his inheritance with a rod of iron. He can dash his inheritance to pieces like a shattered clay pot. This language paints the king as something like God's instrument of judgment upon human rebellion. The rebels have been given to the new king and the king will exact God's judgment. Can you see that this son of God king, he is God's answer to human rebellion. He has been given authority and power by God to bring human rebels to judgment. Are you starting to see why it might actually be terrifying that God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill? So how should a smart rebel respond? We're at point three, be wise, O kings. And let's read the last couple of verses of the psalm. From verse 10 to verse 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it, but monarchs today are not exactly terrifying. They don't exactly strike fear into your heart. Let me give you an example. Is anyone scared? (laughs) Not for those reasons. Not for those reasons. These two senior citizens don't exactly look that fearsome. They don't exactly strike fear into your heart, do they? King Charles and his queen consort Camilla at roughly about 75 years of age, they probably don't instill the fear of God in the hearts of many enemies. 
But we have to realise that we live in very abnormal times in the history of world monarchs. Throughout most of the history of our world, there were very powerful kings and in the countries that surrounded them, there were less powerful kings who had to make a decision. That decision is really helpfully summarised by Jesus in a parable that he told. So I'll let Jesus take it from here. We're going to Luke 14, 31 and 32. We'll put it on the screen so you can follow it. Luke 14, 31 to 32. Jesus said, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now those terms of peace, we like to think of peace as a fairly good-natured thing, but those terms of peace would have been pretty ugly. You can stay alive, here are the conditions. You serve us. If you were a king throughout most of world history and you were confronted by a more powerful king, You had the choice to fight or to submit. You could try to fight and overpower the other king and become the new superpower in your section of the world. But it was a high risk, high reward kind of situation. You had to risk the potential of losing the fight, being absolutely smashed in battle and having your country and your people ransacked completely for your rebellion. Your other choice was to submit to the more powerful king. You could ask for peace with the more powerful king as long as you let him be in charge and submit yourself and your kingdom to him. What do you think a smart king would do? Like Jesus said, you need to weigh up your opponent, don't you? And weigh up your chances. So what should a wise king of the earth do when confronted by God's appointed king? If God has given his king power and authority over all the earth, then a wise human king should probably sit down, lay down their guns and surrender very quickly to the Lord of all the earth. Verses 11 and 12 put that surrender in beautiful poetic language, don't they? Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son. That imagery of kissing the Son lest he be angry and you perish. It's all about submitting. In the ancient world, it was often the great king's feet that the submitting king would kiss. It was a very clear demonstration. You are all powerful. I am not. I submit to you. Sign of submission, service, gratitude. And interestingly, if you did choose to submit to the great king rather than to take the great king on and try and throw him off, if you chose to submit to the great king, then he became your protector. He became, well, your big brother. He became your refuge against any other kings who wanted to come and take you. This psalm is holding out that kind of protection, that kind of peace, that kind of refuge to human rebels. Whether they be kings or commoners, God's king 
is clearly pictured in this psalm as having all of God's power and all of God's authority for judging human rebels. Yet the hope of refuge is promised to rebels who submit to God's king. There's just one more question I'd like to ask you to think about. It's clear that this psalm is addressed, at least in part, to the kings of the earth, isn't it? But um, although the, the psalm addresses those kings of the earth who've taken their stand against God and his Israelite king, this psalm was Israel's psalm, wasn't it? Those kings of all the other nations... They weren't going to be able to read this psalm. These psalms were Israel's psalms, Israel's songbook. So why is this psalm addressing those kings who will never really read this psalm? One more chance to be an honorary Australian. Do you think you've got it in you? Let's do it. It'll be helpful. Here's a question on screen. I'd love you to have a chat with the person next to you. Why address this psalm to kings who are never going to read it? You've got 30 seconds to enjoy being Australian. Go for it. Okay, let's have a think about this together. What did you think? This psalm is for the people of Israel, isn't it? Little, tiny Israel, surrounded by powerful enemy nations and often under the rule of powerful enemy kings. Psalm 2 was written to encourage the embattled people of Israel with the good news that God and his king would have worldwide victory. I wonder whether this psalm functions just a little bit for Israel, a little bit like the video made by Volodymyr Zelensky from the centre of Kiev very soon after Russia invaded. Do you remember the video? The American president had offered him the opportunity to be extracted from Kiev and to leave the country where he could safely kind of direct the battle. And he courageously said, I don't need a lift, I need ammunition, send it over. And then that night he was out, obviously in the centre of Kiev, saying to his people, I'm not going anywhere. We may be small, they may be a superpower, but I'm here, are you with me? I wonder whether Psalm 2 functions just a little bit about that amazing video. The people of Israel, they didn't just have communication from a brave president, giving them hope to keep going. This psalm is Israel's God reminding his people that the superpowers will not win in the end. Psalm 2 reassured God's people that their God will install his king and will reign over all the earth. Wouldn't that shape the way the people of Israel persevered through the hardships inflicted upon them by superpower after superpower after superpower? So it's time for us to think about how this psalm applies to us today in our lives in 2022. We're at point four, our last point today, this psalm and me. Now, I hope you've noticed that we've worked hard to try to understand this psalm in its natural context, in the original context in which it was written first. 
This psalm applied first and foremost to the kings of Israel who were descended from David. Incredibly, for a small moment in history, and you've been studying it this year, for a small moment in history, little tiny Israel was kind of a world superpower. It was around 1000 BC, it was the back end of David's reign and it continued into his son Solomon's reign. You've been reading about it, you've seen it. At that point in history, little tiny tin pot Israel was kind of almost a world superpower. But you've also seen that pretty much after Solomon, it was all downhill for Israel and her kings. That promised worldwide victory that they'd been clinging on to, that, that king after king didn't quite deliver, it hadn't materialised under the reign of any king in Israel for centuries. And then roughly 400 years later, after King David, in about 600 BC, the new world superpower, Babylon, actually conquered the last of God's people remaining and pretty much destroyed the Israelite kingdom completely. After Babylon took everything and hauled the people of Israel off into exile, can you imagine how much the people of Israel longed for the peace and the victory that this psalm was holding out? And that, I think that very crumbling of their nation into almost nothing helped them to see that this psalm was always a future promise. Can you imagine how much the people of Israel longed for this son of God king to come and defeat his enemies and give them worldwide victory that had been promised by God in Psalm 2? And then it was hundreds of years later again when Rome was the, the superpower on the block, the, the, the bully of that area of the world. Hundreds of years later, around the first century, a little baby is born. But even before he's born... He starts being referred to in this kingly, son of God language, even before he's born. From the angel who appeared to Mary's betrothed husband, Joseph, and told him that the baby that was conceived was conceived by God's Holy Spirit. To the wise men who came to worship, they didn't come to worship a baby, they came to worship the king of the Jews. This baby was loaded with Psalm 2 kinds of expectation. And then after the baby had grown into a man at his baptism, you remember the voice from heaven confirmed that most precious title from Psalm 2. God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And as we move through the gospel, we, we watch and Jesus does all the things you might expect God's king to do and showed all the power that you might expect God's long-promised king to have. But Jesus did not widely proclaim himself to Israel as the great son of God, Messiah King. It was only some who could start to see it before his death and resurrection. Only some started to, well, it was revealed to only some that this guy, was the long-promised Psalm 2, Messiah King, the Son of God. One example of this uh, being revealed was to the Apostle Peter. But before we read about it, I want to just alert you to two things that are pretty important to understand as we read this verse. The first one is this. Another way of referring to the Son of God King is a way that you'll have heard. 
It's the Hebrew word Messiah. The Messiah literally was the Son of God King. And when we take that word Messiah into Greek, the language spoken in the Roman Empire around the time of Jesus, the translation is Christ. It means this Son of God, King. And the second thing I want you to notice is how Peter came to the right conclusion that Jesus is this Son of God, King. Can we put the verse on the screen, please? Matthew 16, verses 15 to 17. Jesus said to his disciples, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Even if it takes divine intervention for rebellious humans to see this truth, it could not be clearer that Jesus is this great, long-promised Psalm 2 King. And that is why the disciples get so surprised just a few verses later when Jesus, the great Son of God, Messiah King, turns around and says this. Have a look on the screen. From Matthew 16, 21, 22. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you, Lord. You see, you can see, you can feel Peter's problem, can't you? You can understand why Peter reacts like this. Jesus, you're the Psalm 2 king. You smash other people that are getting in the way. You don't get smashed yourself. You're the one. We've clearly seen it. You, you don't die. You kill the enemies that are in the way. Not be killed by the enemies of God, people. You, could, you can understand Peter's reaction. And yet, in God's incredible wisdom, the way this king would win the worldwide victory and bring peace was through his own death on a cross, followed by resurrection, followed by exaltation to the th worldwide throne in heaven. How amazing that the great worldwide king would not just come with a rod of iron, but would come first to give his life as a sacrifice for human rebels. Jesus gave his life at the cross so that rebels like you and me could lay down our guns and flee to him for refuge. He is the great. Son of God, King. He does indeed hold the iron rod of God's power. And yes, he will bring every rebel to judgment. But by dying in our place, he has taken upon himself the iron rod of judgment from God for other rebels. For other rebels who want to make peace rather than fight it out to the bitter end. And so if you want peace and refuge with God and with his king, instead of facing the iron rod of judgment, please make peace with the king now. Submit to him as your king by trusting in his death for your salvation. 
As you look around at the various world powers today, what do you see? America fading, China rising, India wishing, Russia plotting, Australia trying. Would you prefer to trust in any of those world rulers right now? Or perhaps do those world rulers unsettle you and shake your confidence in God and his plans for the world? In the turmoil of current world politics, let this psalm remind you of reality, of who is truly in charge. If you are a Christian in England struggling to cope with political, health, economic challenges, please remember who is really in charge and submit to the true king. Listen to Jesus about how to respond wisely and Christianly to the messy times that you might find yourself in at the moment. It's the same in other parts of the world, isn't it? If you are a Christian in Hong Kong right now and you're struggling to cope with the challenges of government and bureaucracy and protests You need to remember who is truly in charge and submit to the true king. And you need to listen to Jesus about how to respond wisely and Christianly to the messy situation that you presently find yourself in. And we could go through every country of the world. If you're a Christian in Ukraine at the moment, you're going to need to do the same thing and it's going to be even harder. If you're a Christian in Australia at the moment, you're going to need to do the same thing. We need to remember who is really in charge So we continue to submit to him and trust in him that God is working out his big plan to bring peace to the whole world. And you need to remember that Jesus is the key to that plan. Jesus is everything for that plan. Make no mistake about who is in charge. Jesus is the great Psalm 2, Son of God, King. He has right now been given all authority to bring his judgment to this whole world. And if you don't want the beautiful forgiveness that he died to provide you, then you will need to face him as your judge. But I guess this psalm reminds us that rebellion is actually in the end a waste of time. Not only is it a waste of time for the the reasons the Psalm 2 spoke about, reasons that God just laughs at your human rebellion, reasons that you are puny and you cannot overthrow the God of all the universe, but rebellion is now even a bigger waste of time because the great Son of God, King, has already won the victory. It's already been achieved. He has already taken the victor's throne in heaven and he will soon return in judgment and so you need to work out how you want to meet the great king as friend or foe as lord or enemy as subject or subversive i really hope you will seek peace with the great king and find the beauty of refuge in his power and grace Let's give thanks to him.
Our Father, we're really thankful for Psalm 2 that reminds us how much this world needs to be brought to peace. And we're thankful for the wisdom of your plan that we would never have realised, we would never have thought up ourselves. That you would bring peace by sending the all-powerful king into your world. And that he would not just bring the iron rod of judgment and yet he would also face the iron rod of judgment on behalf of others. Father, thank you for being so kind to us to give us the opportunity to repent and submit to him and flee to refuge for him. Father, I pray that you'll help every one of us here to keep remembering who's in charge in a world of political turmoil and uh, as our countries get messier and harder. Please keep reminding us who's in charge. Help us to look to him. Help us to live for him. Please strengthen us to keep doing that for his glory. Amen.